Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. We're thrilled to welcome David Walt, professor at Harvard, faculty at the Wies Institute and serial entrepreneur to the show today. Thank you once again for joining us. To help host this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Chris Godbon. David, if you will, can you kick things off and share a brief intro with us? So I actually grew up in Detroit, went to University of Michigan, was a chemistry major, then did my training in uh, chemical biology at uh, uh, Stony Brook. I perhaps was the first chemical biology grad in the country, but in those days, it meant something quite different. Uh, I then uh, moved up uh, here to Boston to do my postdoctoral work at MIT with George Whitesides, who shortly after I uh, left his lab, he moved to Harvard. My training was really in synthetic organic chemistry, and then I first got into biochemistry with George doing enzyme catalyzed synthesis. And I learned how to immobilize things to surfaces. And that's what launched my career. I I then went uh, entering faculty member, assistant professor uh, at Tufts University, also in the chemistry department, and then moved about five years ago here to Harvard Medical School, where my lab moved from more chemistry-based work to really more clinically focused research. Thanks once again for joining us, David. Pleasure to have you on the show. Would love to help weave an intro together. Throughout your career, what's been the North Star, if you will, that's the common thread tying all your work together? I would say that there's nothing that has been a North Star throughout my career. I would say that the second two thirds of my career, my North Star has really been on translating things uh, into healthcare, really developing new tools that can address unmet needs. So that's the big North Star. The, the, the mini North Star, I would say, is really just making sure that I, I trained and mentored uh, students and postdocs in, in the most effective way for them to succeed. And one fun question we love to ask our guests to kick off episodes here comes from Dennis Gabor, electrical engineer and recipient of the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics. He says the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. As someone whose work has helped shape biological research around the world, can you share with us what does inventing the future mean to you? 
It's a really great quote. And I think that at least from my uh, perspective, what I take from that, at least in, in my own experience, is that if you develop some new tools, new capabilities, and you make those widely available to the community, then you enable the future. That is, if you come up with a technology that is widely adopted by researchers around the world that can address questions, a multitude of questions, then you're essentially inventing the future simply by providing those tools that enable others to make those incredible discoveries. Fantastic. I'll pass it off to Chris now to talk about technology translation from bench to bedside. To help set some additional context for our audience, can you walk us through the early days of your research and share how and where your career really began? I alluded to this a little bit in my description of my postdoctoral studies. I learned how to attach enzymes to surfaces. And, and the reason that the, the White Science Lab was pursuing that was really for very practical reasons that if you want to use an enzyme to perform catalysis, similar to just you know doing an organic chemistry reaction, but instead of doing it with organic molecules and catalysts and organic solvents, you could just do it in water at pH 7 and ambient temperature with an enzyme as a catalyst. Sometimes those enzymes are either unstable or they're incredibly expensive. And so by attaching them to surfaces such as insoluble polymers, you could simply run the reaction and then uh, filter them or let them settle after the reaction and recover them. And so when I first uh, started my academic career, I tried to find an area to which I could apply these skills. And I, I looked in the literature and sensors turned out to be an area that really was begging for a, a good surface chemistry. People were just kludging things together with dialysis membranes and O-rings and electrodes. And we started to attach molecules to the surface of optical fibers, that is you know, fiber optic uh, cables, and create optical sensors out of these using this at surface attachment chemistry to prepare sensors and biosensors that could address a multitude of problems. Taking that work a step further, you founded over your, the course of your career, David, eight companies now. Among them, Illumina is arguably one of the most impactful biotech companies in history and has truly been a great enabler for the entire field of genetics. Can you share with us the founding of Illumina? Let me wrap that answer up into the follow-on to the previous question. We're developing these sensors and measuring things one at a time. If you wanted to measure penicillin or you wanted to measure pH or carbon dioxide or glucose, you'd make a sensor for each one of those. And over time, we developed some technologies that allowed us to measure multiple things simultaneously. And one of these technologies was applied to the creation of DNA chips or DNA microarrays. And we published a paper and it was a, a fairly rudimentary and, and very time-consuming approach to actually make these DNA sensors. 
or rays where we would measure something like six or seven things simultaneously. And I was talking to a colleague who was more tapped into the genetics community at the time. He had just read a paper we published in Nature Biotechnology, where we apparently coined the term microarray in that paper from 1996. And he said, you know, David, as I talk to many of my biology colleagues and many of my genetics colleagues, they're interested not in making six measurements, but perhaps a couple dozen sequences simultaneously. And I can imagine in the future that somebody may want to measure a hundred or a thousand things at a time. Well, at that moment, there had been a couple of experiments that my lab had done with attaching things to beads and creating micro well arrays. And I'm not you know, going to go into the details of all that, but it was a, a moment. And I, I always like to describe this as the first uh, Matrix uh, movie where Neo is fighting Mr. Smith at the end. And then all of a sudden things fall into place. He can read the binary code and it just becomes a trivial exercise to fight him off because he can see the program. Well, it was a similar kind of experience for me where all the pieces fell into place. And I realized that this was really the future of how one would create massively parallel arrays of nucleic acid sequences in, in an array format that could be scaled to not just a thousand, but tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and you know now even millions of uh, measurements simultaneously. And so we went in the lab. I, I took a, a number of students off their projects, really one of the, the, the first and only times in my career that I did this, and put them on this project that I thought was really a transformative one for the lab. And within something like four to six weeks, we had demonstrated the possibility and realized the, the, the potential of this idea. And I went out to Scripps to give a talk. And in the audience that day were a couple of venture capitalists who had been alerted that I was going to describe this new technology. And sure enough, right afterwards, one of the VCs, Larry Bach, came up to me, asked if I'd have breakfast with him the next day. And it's the proverbial, the rest is history. Larry invested in Illumina, and, and then nothing's been the same since for me. What a truly, honestly, exciting story. And it's phenomenal, especially to hear how you not only recognized a white space, but then carried it through to become such an impactful company. I think we're all curious to hear, throughout Illumina's growth, what was your experience like as a scientific founder and board member? So it's a really interesting question. Obviously, at the time, this was almost 25 years ago at this point, I was new to this area of entrepreneurship. I, I had had some technologies that had been licensed for my laboratory previously, but kind of nothing at this scale and, and nothing really with the kind of financial resources that were, were available through this syndicate of, of venture capitalists. I, I think the most impactful thing for me was being on the board. I, I, I took a board seat because a scientific colleague who had founded a company said, look, David, just 
get yourself on the board for the first five years so that you can at least be in the room when decisions are made. You know, it's going to be important as a scientist to make sure that things are, are moving in the right direction, at least from your technical perspective. And, you know, I remember it really very early in the, the, the process, perhaps right before the company had its IPO, that a very experienced senior executive, we were taught, was, was a member of the board. And I remember we were talking about making investments in research and various ways that we could invest some of the, the resources. And as a scientist, I was thinking, well, let's just put the, the financial resources into the coolest science and technology that could be done. Let's really invest heavily in all this great research, which frankly, I think a lot of scientific founders unfortunately think about companies as a spin-off lab to their own academic lab. And I was uncharacteristically quiet because I just looked at this as a learning experience. And I just listened to the conversation and this very experienced senior exec said, look, let's get the product out the door. Let's make sure we get that first product right, get it out the door. Let's not invest too much in the next generation of research. Yes, we have to do that, but let's make sure we focus on what's important because if we don't get product one out the door in a way that's going to be acceptable to the market, that is going to not provide us with any opportunity to invest in the future. And I remember that was my first lesson. As a board member, as a director, you have to focus on what's best for the business. And you have to address market needs and meet those market needs. It's not about doing the coolest science necessarily. You want to do things that are going to actually sell products and generate revenue. And so I think that really was an eye-opening thing for me to, to realize that decisions in business were not always decisions that perhaps enabled the best science or the best technology, that it was just what was best for the business. And as you gain these lessons and learn more both in science and business, did you feel that your role evolved as Illumina Group? Well, so I, I was on the board of directors of Illumina for 18 years. I, I don't think it was only because of my scientific credentials. I, I took an academic approach to my early days and throughout my days on, on the board. You know, I used this as a learning opportunity. And by listening to really smart people, make decisions, how they made decisions, how they came to those decisions, the kinds of considerations that business people take into account. I became a valuable member of the board, not only for my technical chops, but also because I paid attention and had some interesting perspectives about market and other aspects of business. And as you said, I've founded seven more companies since Illumina. And I think I bring that ex extensive business experience with me to those companies as well. 
That's actually exactly what I was hoping to ask more about now. You talked about a number of the lessons you learned from your experience at Illumina and how you've translated those principles into your other startups. Can you walk us through a few of those uh, a few of those principles and how they were translated? Sure. I think there's quite a few of those principles. I'll, I'll, I'll cover a few of them. I would say one principle is, and, and this is something that you know, probably is business 101, but I think a lot of scientists don't understand this, is that it's really not about how exciting a particular technology or discovery is. You have to be able to translate that into a market. And what I mean by that is just ask yourself, what's this good for? Why would people want to buy this thing? And I think in many cases, scientists, they can articulate the answer to that, but the market is a very small one. There might be 20 labs in the world that might buy something. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't translate it, but the type of company or the type of translation that you might put into place would be very different than something you know, that would have thousands or tens of thousands of customers. And then I think the, you know, the other thing I would say that I've learned, and, and I think that there's you know, a lot of scientists who don't appreciate this, a lot of scientific entrepreneurs who don't appreciate this, is that as expert as you are in your science, in your technology, in your engineering, whatever your technical field is, there are other fields like finance and marketing and engineering and all sorts of different aspects of business that are required to take that invention or discovery from the lab to a successful commercial launch. And those individuals have the same amount of expertise in their areas as you do in your area. And it's really important for you as a young or first-time entrepreneur to recognize that you have a lot to learn on the business side. And it's irresponsible to the investors in a company if you try to take on too much of a role in that company and get outside of your wheelhouse of where your expertise lies. Bringing everything together, what do you think about the entrepreneurial ecosystem today? How can academic institutions help continue to catalyze innovation? I think that the entrepreneurial ecosystem today is quite uh, robust in the last few years. The amount of capital that's available is extraordinary. But I think it really gets back to the answer to the last question. I think that you really have to make sure that you as an entrepreneur are being honest with yourself about not only the invention and the technology and the discovery, but also about whether there's really a market there, number one. And number two is who are the partners that you need to work with that can fill in the gaps that you don't have as an entrepreneur to enable you to really develop a successful company. 
I, I have a, a, a pet peeve, and that's that I really do not think that graduate students and postdocs who are the inventors of a technology from an academic lab should become the CEO of a company. I think that's obvious from my previous comments. I, I think you want to make sure that you get value-add investors that can help introduce you to people who are really experts in those areas that need to, to be addressed to make this business a success. Getting back to the question, I think that there are a lot of academic institutions that are more interested in just bean counting. That is saying that they launched X numbers of companies than they are in really enabling those companies to succeed and helping those entrepreneurs, putting them in touch with people who can really help make those enterprises successful. Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. Transitioning now slightly and building off the academic involvement in innovation, specifically around COVID, we'd love to talk to you about the Mass General Brigham Center for COVID Innovation, which was established in March to address the evolving coronavirus pandemic. To begin, can you share more about the founding of the center? We have to put ourselves back to pretty trying times, right? That if, as you recall, right after the, the Biogen conference, Boston became a, a, a hotspot right after Seattle. And all of a sudden, we were experiencing people presenting in the emergency departments, filling up intensive care units. There were supply chain issues with PPE, with a, a complete lack of diagnostic tests, no therapeutics, no way to track people. And so we really, at, at the request of the National Brigham leadership, Gary Tierney at Mass General and I were asked by leadership to co-direct this Mass General Brigham Center for COVID Innovation. And both of us have uh, translational experience. We both translated successfully technologies from our labs. We know uh, a little bit about organization and we spun up this center on short notice and within you know, a few weeks, we had come up with a, a, a plan to have three different pillars. Devices, which dealt with everything from PPE to nasal swabs to disinfecting masks that had already been used so that they could be reused while the supply chain was being filled in. We had a diagnostics pillar that was responsible for coming up with a way to handle the tremendous need for diagnosing not only patients, but healthcare workers, as well as 
individuals who thought they had been exposed. We had a, a pillar on therapeutics, and we had a pillar on data and analytics, which was responsible for uh, launching things like contact tracing technologies, but also collating and making available to the public information that enabled them to access the latest and best information uh, about what to do. And it went from nothing to an effort of over 2,000 individuals from pretty much all aspects of not just the MGB system, but the entire academic and medical communities in, in Massachusetts, biotech companies, pharma companies, engineering companies, anybody that felt that they could help became a member of one of these pillars. And as you recall, there were a lot of people who were literally sitting at home because they could not go to work and they were looking for something to do and they had something to contribute. And, and this really provided them with an opportunity to work in a meaningful way to help stem the, the pandemic in its earliest stages. And so it was just really an incredible uh, opportunity for us to do something that I'm very proud of. I think we really helped save lives. We helped protect healthcare workers and we helped enable the pandemic to, to be eased much more than it would have had this center not existed. What a truly phenomenal group of people and effort and organizations all coming together. David, can you share a little bit more, and you touched on this briefly, about what your role has been with the center and what prompted you to get involved? You know, when you get called by leadership of the most prominent healthcare system in, in the region, and they're asking you to do something that was so, so urgent, I felt that both my academic career, but also my experience with launching new enterprises and dealing with some of the logistical issues that one deals with in, in business, that I was extremely well positioned to take this on. And I think Gary uh, Tierney was also in a you know, equally privileged position. And so no was not an option. Let's put it that way. And we knew what we were getting into was an incredibly draining experience. I probably worked from six in the morning till 1 a.m. every day. And I was probably working in my sleep as well, just because my mind was so active and agitated, just knowing that what we were doing was critical to help protect uh, so many people at, at the epicenter of trying to help save so many lives. But I also took on the role of leading the diagnostics pillar. That's my, you know, one of my areas of, of research is developing new diagnostic technologies. We really put together, I would say, tremendous effort on the diagnostic side to help identify appropriate technologies, help validate them and help get them to, to the right locales and, and right sites in, in the time frame that could help address the problems. And the same thing happened with Gary took on the devices pillar, and we had some great folks on the data and analytics, as well as on the therapeutic side as well. It was a, a tremendous team effort. So I, I co-directed the center, but also drove the diagnostics pillar of the center. Here at Alix, we believe that the key to changing the world starts first with identifying the right problems to solve. 
given the rapidly changing landscape of the pandemic and the fact that, as you described, there really weren't enough hours in the day for the incredible work you were doing, how did the centers select which problems to focus on? And have these targets changed as the pandemic still continues? I think it was the, the proverbial triage that happens in medicine. You treat the, 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 the patients who are most in need. And we took that approach. At, at first, the, the highest priority was not diagnostics. It was not therapeutics. It, it was really PPE. How do we protect our healthcare workers? How do we prevent patients from transmitting uh, disease to other patients in the hospitals? And that was really the primary focus in the first month was all hands on deck purpose to that problem. And it was multiple meetings of the pillars and different subsets of the pillars. As I mentioned, we had to figure out what's the best way to sterilize the masks so they could be reused without compromising their efficacy and, and preventing them from being degraded. We worked in, in concert with Raytheon to come up with the, the ultraviolet light solution, chemical treatments, gas sterilization, and we had validation groups. And of, of course, there were, were also sourcing folks who were trying to source uh, materials from all over the world with the you know new gowns and with face shields. We worked with the additive manufacturing that is the 3D printing companies to come up with ways of printing face shields. But once that was under control, which was a concerted effort for probably three weeks, we rapidly turned to the next problem, which was diagnostics, because you, you can't prevent transmission if you don't know who's infected. And that was really how we proceeded. I think the therapeutics side of things was something that we knew was going to be a longer term thing. So that pillar operated relatively independently. And when they came up with leads, those were obviously inserted into to various clinical trials. And there were, as you know, a lot of missteps with some of those early therapeutics. And then on the data analytics side, figuring out a way to do contact tracing and just getting a, a system in place in the hospitals where healthcare workers could attest to their symptoms so that we prevented people who thought they might have a cold or had a mild fever from coming in and potentially infecting others. It was really based on this triage principle of let's do the most important things first, the most critical things first. And then at some point, two or three months down the road, things got more into sort of a routine kind of mode where we got into to a cadence of still urgent, but not critical. As you mentioned earlier, and among the numerous challenges the center is tackling, you've brought your significant experience and diagnostics to bear and are helping lead the charge to develop COVID-19 diagnostics. As a society trying to move forward, what diagnostics and analytics do we need, particularly as the virus continues to mutate and spread? I think it's pretty well known that we really need the rapid at-home tests. I would say that the federal government, just across the board, has failed at recognizing the importance of at-home testing. 
and they're trying to recover from it now. But of course, it's difficult when you've invested in one technology like PCR that's you know primarily done in a central laboratory, and now you have to pivot to something where you do these rapid tests, which are, are not as accurate. It was known a year and a half ago that the antigen tests were not accurate, but if you did them multiple times, separated by a couple of days here, a couple of days there, that the accuracy was as good at, and, and perhaps even more informative than a PCR test, because it's really catching active infection. I think we need to get back to that. We, we need to make those rapid tests available. We need to get the FDA on board to approve those things a lot quicker and not to have the sort of gold standard bar of PCR against which they're measuring them. I, I think we also would benefit from, and these could be done very cheaply, tests that can really qualitatively tell people how their antibodies are doing. And I'm not talking about neutralization. I'm, I'm just talking about the quantity of antibodies that, that somebody has. And that's a reasonable correlate of their ability to neutralize the virus and, and the variants. And I think com combining both rapid testing for active infection to prevent further infection with monitoring your immune status, that is how the antibodies you developed against the vaccine are doing, I think this would be incredibly helpful to help prevent future surges of infection simply because people will go and get the booster when they need to, not just on some regular time frame, but they could monitor how well they're doing and compare themselves to how they were doing a month ago or two months ago. To help ensure the proper distribution of these diagnostics that you're describing and to enable the proper aggregation and utilization of the rapidly accumulating data, do you believe that healthcare will need to change, either here in the U.S. or globally? This is a very difficult question to answer. I, I, I think we know that, or, or we've certainly learned, that science and technology do not have all the answers that behavioral, social, political aspects certainly play an equal, if not bigger role in ensuring that the right decisions are made. And, and by the right decisions, I'm talking not just, you know, as implied by your question or explicitly asked, not just here in Boston or here in the U.S., but globally. We have an entire continent of Africa that's vaccinated at the rate of 4% of its population. That's unacceptable because this is a global pandemic. And if the entire global population is not protected, then we're not protected from future variants or future pandemics. Just as we saw with the, the you know, climate discussions that occurred over the last couple of weeks, it's not about will, it's not about science, it, it's really about getting people on board and recognizing the importance of 
investing in anticipating for the next pandemic, in ensuring that supply chain is in place, not just for the US, but for developing world as well, and getting people to understand that this is not a personal choice about what you want to do. This is a choice that's important for protecting others, which I think has been completely missed. That message has been completely missed because it's not about protecting yourself. It's about protecting others. And that's the purpose of vaccination. It has the, the benefit of protecting yourself, but it's not for you. It's for the population. A message I think we're all trying in our own way to get out there. And taking that one step further and broadening our gaze. Can you share with us the lessons learned from COVID and your work with the center? Yeah, I think we need to obviously be prepared to rapidly address these emerging threats in a way that I think is a cohesive and coherent approach to it. It needs to be a comprehensive approach. It can't simply be putting fires out. I think we really need to prepare in a way that uh, you know, I think a lot of people view public health as a cost, and it is a cost. And I think there will be a, a great tendency if we spend a huge amount of money to put appropriate public health measures in place, bolster laboratory capacity so that they can be rapidly purposed in times of crisis. Over time, people will get fatigued about continuing to invest what will likely be billions of dollars per year in the public health system when 25 years from now, let's hope, there's still no pandemic. But 26 years from now or 50 years from now, there can be. And if you're not prepared, we're just going to go through the same sort of suffering, both in terms of people dying, but also economic damage. And we can avoid all that. So I think it's an insurance policy. And then I think the other message is really that this has to be, it needs to be a global effort. Pivoting to our next topic in early diagnosis and precision medicine. In addition to your work as co-director of the Mass General Brigham Center for COVID Innovation, you're also PI to the Walt Lab for Advanced Diagnostics and are the faculty lead for the VIS Diagnostics Accelerator. As a pioneer who's helped drive diagnostics for over two decades now, what are your thoughts on the current and future states of diagnosis? You asked a question that's near and dear to my heart. I think we've heard a lot about personalized medicine. And I think that's the dream. Everybody gets diagnosed and treated specific to their disease state, genetic makeup, et cetera, et cetera. But if you think about the way we actually do diagnostics today, we take a blood sample and we measure it for a bunch of things. And it's a snapshot in time. And what we do is we compare that to 
a population average, that is a normal range. And I think that is, is a flawed approach as we get into these areas of genomics and proteomics, where we're already seeing that gene expression, even in ostensibly healthy individuals, protein expression can vary by three or four orders of magnitude, even among healthy individuals. So what is healthy or normal for one person might be pathological for another person. And so I think we need to get away from this population approach to diagnostics and begin to think about longitudinal measurements of individuals and comparing people to their prior healthy selves so that you're not comparing yourself to everybody else, you're comparing yourself to yourself in a prior healthy state. Yes, you have to account for age, but I, I think if we were to do this, we would begin to see that some of the kinds of markers that will be early indications of chronic inflammation, of early stage cardiovascular disease, early stage cancer might be things that we're already measuring, but because we're locked into this population average approach, that you're still in the range of what the population presents, but you, you may be two or three logs higher than what you did two years ago. And that should be a red flag and, and should be the way that we begin to think about personalized diagnosis. You've said that most new diagnostics are developed through technology push, and then you want to pull technology to solve clinical problems. As we transition to thinking more about precision medicine, what does pulling technology mean to you? And how can the healthcare industry bring about that transition from a push to a pull to really drive this change you've described? This is really key point. And I don't want this to be entirely black and white. I think that there are going to be people who love to just develop new tools and, and develop cool technology and good for them. That's great. But it really gets to how will that technology be used? And, and I think that if, if you're interested in technology, I think what you'd like to be able to do is to figure out where's the white space? You used that term earlier. Where's the white space in healthcare? What technologies are needed to help solve important clinical problems, whether it's devices, diagnostics, doesn't matter. Find out, the, find out that first and then try to help address those unmet needs with technology that you invent. And the reason that I have come to that type of approach is that it's the way businesses operate. It's the market pull approach, not the technology push approach, first of all. And then second of all, you have a choice of the, the kinds of problems you work on. 
you know, make sure that there's going to be receptivity for the technology. A great example is Illumina had great genomics technologies that were used for a long time, still are for research purposes. Another company I founded, Quanteric, same thing, great research discoveries. But it took, for both those companies, close to 15 years before they began to see products in the clinic. And if you really want to make a difference in healthcare, I think starting with the unmet need in healthcare, it certainly will compress the time frame for seeing where that technology is actually meeting a need for patients. And David, before we come to a close here, a few rapid fire questions to cap things off. Having been an inspiration for so many listeners in our audience, we'd love to flip it around. Who inspires you and why? Well, a lot of people inspire me. I, I think that the first person who really, truly inspired me was my postdoctoral mentor, George Whitesides, who I think you know, really takes a much broader approach to the kinds of problems that also trained as a chemist took on. He didn't try to solve chemistry problems. He did that, but, but he also you know, began to solve bigger problems. And I think that that was a big inspiration is really getting outside the, the tunnel vision of chemistry and beginning to look at the, the broader world problems. And then I, I'm inspired by the dedication of clinicians. I think you know, we as scientists have a responsibility to help them help their patients. And I'm also inspired quite a bit by just the hard work and dedication of all the people who work in the laboratories and they're getting their degrees completely passionate about their work. And they're not nine to five people. They don't get paid a whole lot. And I'm just always in, inspired by their dedication. David, we've talked a lot about the, the future ahead here. Help us see things through your eyes. What would you describe are the grand challenges of life sciences facing us over the next 30 years? I think the biggest challenge is putting all the, the data that we've collected and are continuing to collect across so many different areas, genomics, spatial biology, proteomics, metabolomics, protein structure, protein design, CRISPR. I think we need to begin to integrate all these data and all these technologies in, into something that is going to help us really understand the workings of biology better, be able to anticipate and predict disease better and prevent it and to cure it if it happens. And the big grand challenge is realizing the potential of all the tools that we already have at our disposal. Obviously, a lot more work to do, but I think 30 years is a good goal. And as we look ahead 30 years and come to biotech in 2050, help us see the landscape you described. What will biotech look like then? I think that we're probably going to see a fusion between 
the, the analytics and the therapeutics. I think it, it's really going to be a more comprehensive approach in the sense that it, it will integrate not just blood test, but it'll integrate environmental information, geotemporal information, and that will be integrated into healthcare and disease management, both in terms of prevention as well as uh, treatment. I, I think that there's going to be tremendous advances in what's now called companion diagnostics, but I think that's going to grow beyond just one test, one disease. I think it's going to be more of a, a one health kind of approach to things. Thanks for a fantastic episode here, David. Any closing thoughts you'd like to share with our audience before we wrap things up? It's been a, a delight. I think we've touched on quite a few topics. Many of the things that I've been thinking about just in terms of how to successfully create and launch companies, but also how we can really better help patients in terms of both purposing technologies, purposing our efforts, as well as specific approaches to how, how we can uh, perform more precision kinds of diagnostics uh, so that you know people are are treated as individuals as opposed to thinking of them as populations. I think that's a, a, a very important thing that I think is missing from the way that we approach healthcare today, which is a patient presents and, and that's a point in time and, and everything about that patient is, is collected at that moment as opposed to, to thinking of it as a continuum. That I think is really the most important lesson I think that I, I hope your audience takes with them. And we've touched on many exciting topics today and a lot of projects you've been up to. How can our audience learn more about your work? Well, if you just Google me, I think a lot of things will come up. My website here at the Brigham on Advanced Diagnostics, my website at the VIS Institute will pop up. There's lots of information, lots of follow-up that is there. And I have uh, lots of public uh, statements and there's videos, but other things that I've been involved with. So I think there's plenty of easy ways to, to track me down. Thanks again for joining us, David. It's been an incredible episode. We're very grateful for your time. Thanks again for joining us. Great. Thanks for the opportunity to share. Thanks for tuning in, BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please email hcls-startups at amazon.com. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.